Last Sunday, we started our examination of a sermon that Jesus gave titled The Bread of Life Discourse. He gave this sermon in Capernaum. The location was a synagogue. The timing was directly following Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 and this interesting story that happens that night on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus walking on the water. Before we get back into our examination of this service, I do want to just take a minute and remind you of the scene and specifically the audience present that day. This synagogue, as mentioned, located in Capernaum, where Jesus gives this sermon, was likely where Jesus conducted most of his earthly ministry while in Galilee. The building itself was majestic. Constructed using funds from a very wealthy, prominent Roman centurion, this synagogue was built right on the Sea of Galilee. Could have held in upwards of 200 people. It was truly an amazing, beautiful building. You can actually visit the very foundation of this building if you ever take a trip to Israel. Now, it's safe to assume that this particular morning, the place, the synagogue, it was packed. Packed to capacity. Jesus behind the pulpit. Aside from the local crowd that no doubt had gathered and the 12 disciples that had made their way across the sea, according to Matthew 15, you also have a delegation of both scribes, the lawyers, and Pharisees, the religious right, sent from Jerusalem, present that morning, desiring to interrogate Jesus. They're sitting in the front pews. These men are deeply skeptical of Jesus. They're looking for a way to discredit the man and his ministry, his standing and popularity amongst the people. In contrast to these skeptics, we also know that there was a crowd, that the crowd probably had swelled because of a large group who had just, A, been miraculously fed by Jesus when he took bread and, and fish and multiplied them. A group that had desperately, coming off of that event, wanted to make Jesus their king, so convinced, by the way, that Jesus is their Messiah, that they have just navigated that morning the trek across the sea looking for Jesus. They're there that morning in attendance as well. So there is a group of skeptics, there's the normal crowd, there's the 12, and then there's a group of really geeked out, excited Jews wanting Jesus to be their king. Now, as we get into the text, let's start with kind of a running head start, looking at the verses that we read, beginning with verse 26, and then we'll get to verse 36. Jesus begins the sermon. The audience hushes. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the sign, which is why, by the way, you should have been seeking, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor, Jesus said, for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, <clears throat> which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. So they said to Jesus, What shall we do that we may see the works of God? And Jesus answered and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him in whom he sent. Therefore, they said to Jesus, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, that God gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Moses said, and Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now in trying to get his audience here to expand their perspective beyond just the temporal, physical needs and desire for bread, Jesus responds to their request that he perform a sign or a miracle similar to Moses in the wilderness by correcting two misconceptions, two key misconceptions. First, Jesus is clear that while they believed that Moses had provided the manna from heaven, that Moses didn't give them this bread, but instead God the Father. Sadly, they failed to realize that Moses, way back when in the Exodus, was just a participant and not the catalyst for the miracle. God sent manna from heaven. Moses was just a participant, was just involved. In verse 27, Jesus opened his sermon with the exhortation, not to labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. And then Jesus adds, which the Son of Man will give you. Jesus is again trying to get his audience to realize that the mechanism for this blessing of everlasting life, which was, by the way, their real need, their everlasting spiritual need would not be through their works. Everlasting life wouldn't be something you would earn. It would be something that would be given by the Son of Man. Just as God had sent the people manna from heaven in the wilderness to care for their physical needs, and it says giving them life, physical life, God had sent Jesus from heaven to earth to provide for their spiritual needs everlasting life. In a sense, the manna from heaven was a picture of Jesus coming to earth. And in both situations, God gave the people something that they would need to receive. Secondly, aside from the mechanism being receiving, not earning, and and you can really sense this, this, the, the other misconception, you can sense this as you read through the sermon, but Jesus at this juncture Coming off of their statement, like, give us this bread also. Like, he just kind of seems to be over the whole bread thing. Like, look at a few lines that Jesus has, has stated to try to pivot from the whole bread, right? He has said, the Son of Man will give you everlasting life. This has got nothing to do with bread. This is something much bigger than bread. He's also said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent, in one ear, out the other. And then Jesus is clear. I mean, the bread, friends, the bread of God, is he. We're not talking about bread. We're talking about a person. He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And yet, in response to these three statements, what do they do? They keep coming back saying, yeah, we want that bread too. They just want bread. Physical bread, physical needs. They can't get beyond this hurdle. Now, while we obviously don't have the tone or the tenor of how Jesus articulated this sermon, it does feel, as you read through it, that Jesus kind of at this point throws up his hands. And he says, can we stop talking about physical bread? He says, the true bread is what? The bread from God is me. Just as God sent bread to care for your physical needs in the Exodus, he sent me from heaven to give life to the world. And again, 
Their response reveals the fact that they're struggling to get beyond the physical. They say, Lord, give us this bread too. Sadly, their desire for physical bread was detracting them from what Jesus really wanted to give them, which was so much more. Finally, Jesus throws up his hands and he declares, I mean, he can't get any clearer than this, right? I am the bread of life. Can we stop talking about physical? We're talking about me. Spoiler alert. Now, as we seek to unpack the implications of this incredible statement, this statement, I am the bread of life, it is radical. It's an amazing statement. But please note that Jesus is playing off their desire for physical bread to illustrate a much deeper principle. And don't miss that as we work through it. It'll be a little bit more important when we get later into the sermon. But know that Jesus is now using bread. Okay, if you're not going to get off the bread thing, I'm just going to roll with it. Bread is an illustration that Jesus is using. So what's his core point? In much the same way that bread gives life to the physical body, Jesus is saying that he provides life to the spiritual man. So this is the play on words, the analogy, the picture he's painting. In a profound sense, it's as though Jesus is saying, I am the only mechanism whereby you can have life. And note, according to verse 27, Jesus is not talking about a temporary life that perishes. He's talking about something which endures, something eternal, everlasting life. There is no question that Jesus is speaking of the spiritual realm because of the statement that immediately follows. Look again at the text. He says, I am the bread of life. And then Jesus immediately follows that statement with a promise, doesn't he? The promise is that he who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. If Jesus was speaking physically, of a physical need, this assertion, this promise, it would be impossible to make good on. In much the same way that that Jesus did with the woman at the well. Jesus is intentionally using these basic physical needs, something we all understand, we all relate to, physical needs such as hunger and thirst. He's using these things we can relate to in order to illustrate the basic spiritual need we all have as a consequence of sin and its effects on our core nature. Because of the immediate effects of sin, I hope you know that the wonder for God we had from life in His presence became a life of wandering, wandering in the wilderness, wonder to wander from the subsequent separation from God that occurred. Whereas we originally possessed all that we ever needed in God, sin, boom, immediately left each of us with a hunger, an inner hunger, an inner thirst, something beyond the physical and the spiritual. With this in mind, you need to understand what Jesus is promising to the person that comes to him, believing he's the bread of life, is true spiritual satisfaction and fulfillment. We're not talking about a physical hunger and a thirst. This means 
that when Jesus says, he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst, Jesus is promising to rectify, to remedy, to fix the effects of sin by bringing to the individual wholeness to what was broken within the spirit of man. Everlasting life. The cry of our heart echoed by the famous line sung by Bono of U2, and I still haven't found what I'm looking for, can be remedied for the person willing to do two things. You notice what Jesus said? He who comes to me, coming to Jesus, and he who believes in him, or believing in Jesus. Friend, you can discover what your soul has always been seeking, always been longing for, if you're willing to do these two things. Let's unpack them for a minute. First, Jesus has come to me. Not only does this demonstrate a humility, but a coming to Jesus requires a turning from something. In order to come, one must turn. And what do we turn for? What must we turn from to come to Jesus? Well, there's two things. We turn from the false promise that true satisfaction can be found apart from God. Or we turn, especially for those of us in the Bible Belt, from the false religious moralism that I can be good enough for God's favor apart from God's involvement. I must turn from those things and come to Jesus. In biblical terminology, this simple act of turning and coming... We call it repentance. It's an about face. Secondly, what does Jesus say? Jesus exhorts us again to what? To believe in him. Now, we talked about this last Sunday, but let me recap. True belief only exists in the dynamic that should the object of that belief fail, your entire life would subsequently fall apart and would be hardly worth living. That's how much you place into the object of one's belief. Biblical belief describes a total trust, the act of a complete reliance, a full clinging to. If Jesus goes down, you go down with him. You must come to him and cling to him. As the bread of life, Jesus is offering to change your spiritual reality. And don't miss that. he's, He's promising to do what nothing else in the world can do. He's promising, friend, to provide true rest in the place of your constant internal wrestling. Real peace instead of that internal tension. Lasting fulfillment Jesus is promising as opposed to that never-ending discontentment you feel. Jesus is promising eternal satisfaction for the soul perpetually dissatisfied by what the world has to offer. I should also point out that Jesus' statement to be the bread of life and thereby effectively address these spiritual needs is both, don't miss this, distinct to him and therefore exclusively a work of him. Distinct and exclusive. It's not just that spiritual life is afforded by Jesus, but Jesus is saying this is spiritual life only afforded by Jesus. 
In the Greek, you'll notice the definite article translated into English as the bread. Not a bread, the bread. And this definite article means that Jesus is actually claiming here, unequivocally and without apology, to be the one and only mechanism for this type of life that he's promising and describing. You see, no other person, no other system, no other scheme, nothing but Jesus will ever be able to remedy this hunger and thirst that you have in your soul. You can search and search and search, but Jesus is telling you up front, your search will end in disappointment. And what's more, by his very admission, this work must be received by you and cannot be earned by you. What grace that such an amazing work, an important work, is not dependent upon your merit or your performance. A few weeks ago, when we were examining Jesus' walking on the water, and more specifically, his exhortation to this group of 12 frightened disciples, when they, when they think it's a ghost, Jesus makes the statement, right? It is I. Do not be afraid. And I mentioned when we were looking at that section of scripture how the Greek phrase, it is I, is actually emi ego, which is a direct reference to Exodus 3 when God introduces himself to Moses as I am that I am. It's the same word. It's why, by the way, in response to that statement, that these 12 men, they end up falling on their faces and they're worshiping Jesus as what? The Son of God. In this statement, I am the bread of life, Jesus again uses this phrase. I am, in the Greek, is emi ego. And he does this in order to attribute the divine name of God to himself. It's not just the bread of life. In stating I am, Jesus is taking an Old Testament name and attributing it to himself. Well, in the Old Testament, God revealed himself to the children of Israel as simply I am who I am. Jesus comes to earth. And what does he do? He adds meat, substance to this name. And how does he do it? Well, we have recorded in the Gospel of John what's known as seven I am statements. Seven things where Jesus will say, I am, and then he'll add meat to it, substance to it. These I am statements are specifically recorded in John's Gospel of Grace. As the first, declaring I am the bread of life is Jesus' first step towards revealing more of the, the character and personality and purpose of Jehovah God to his people, to you and I. Well, verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up the last day. 
I'm sure there's no questions at all about that section of Scripture. It's complex. Well, Jesus here is saying some very interesting things. Uh, Let's start by kind of just setting up his overarching idea. Like the overarching point that Jesus is, is, is making. And this point, it's, it's reiterated and in, to a large extent summarized in verse 40. Just look at it again. Jesus says, and this is his point, that everyone who believes in Jesus will have two important things happen. First, Jesus says, you may have everlasting life. And no, that's, in, that's a present possession. It's something that's bestowed the very moment you come to Jesus and believe in Jesus. You are given everlasting life. It's not a golden ticket for later. It's life right now that happens to last for eternity. But notice the second thing that Jesus is saying will happen to those that believe. He says, of those who come and believe, I will raise him up at the last day. Now, in its literal reading, there is no question that Jesus is promising here a future resurrection of your physical body. Now, the obvious question, and I think kind of sadly, the the misguided debate tends to kind of get relegated in sinners on what does Jesus mean here by the last day? And more specifically, when does that day actually happen? Now, please understand, that's not the point of Jesus' sermon here. Like, this isn't a central point. It's not a B, C, D, or E point. Meaning, I don't really want to descend down the rabbit hole as to the last days. Other than to say this. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, this is what the Apostle Paul writes of this particular topic. He says that he's confident, yes, well-pleased rather, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, you can debate the timing and even the essence of your bodily resurrection. When it happens, how it happens, what does it look like? What's important is this. A, it will happen. And B, when you die, you will instantly, according to Scripture, find yourself in the presence of Jesus. Those are the two things important. When this body gets resurrected, I honestly don't really care. Now, what's fascinating in the larger point about this section of Jesus' sermon is the two concepts he seems to interweave back and forth that appear at odds. And I don't know if you picked up on it. Well, on one end of the equation, there's no question that Jesus has repeatedly encouraged his audience, right, to make a decision of the will by coming to him and believing in him. He also says in verse 37 that all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Interesting. And then Jesus adds in verse 39, of all he's given me, I should lose none none of it, nothing, but will raise it up the last day. While Jesus has unquestionably encouraged the audience to make a decision of the will to come to him and believe in him, there is no doubt that Jesus is also saying that those who ultimately do come were already given to him by the Father and therefore cannot be lost. Two things kind of seem at odds, but are absolutely articulated, and you can't wiggle through. The obvious and logical question when reading this section of Scripture is this. 
do I really have a choice to come to Jesus? Or is my coming to Jesus already predetermined by God the Father? Do I choose or am I chosen? Here's my answer. Yes. That help? If you choose to come to Jesus, it's clear you were always chosen. And if you choose not to come to Jesus, it's clear you were never chosen. Furthermore, if you choose to come to Jesus, then choose to leave Jesus. You were never chosen, though maybe at one point you were actually chosen, but forfeited that right by making a terrible choice. Hebrews 4, verses 4 and 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So I hope that clears up all confusion. Honestly, I don't know how any of this works. I know the Bible teaches both. I believe both. I take grand, grand encouragement in both. I don't know how it works. And if you're looking for a pastor that does, this is not the church. I will say, if you find one that does, he has no idea what he's talking about. Because we've been debating this for 2,000 years. I don't know how it works, other than I can say, it works. Beyond that, I will say that these, these are the two things I know with absolute certainty. Okay? John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So I know that. And I also know what Romans 8, verses 28 through 31 says. Paul writes, And we know that all things work together for, for the good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purposes, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he justified. And whom he justified, these he glorified. What then shall we say to these things? <laughs> Paul says, well, if God is for us, who can be against us? How the two ideas of man's determinate free will to decide and God's predetermination fit together I have no idea other than to say that in this very moment in time, right now, what actually matters? What actually matters is this. There has never been a soul who has ever come to Jesus and been refused by Jesus. It's never happened. Meaning, this morning, if you want to be sure that you were chosen, predestined, foreknown, before the foundations of the world. If you want to be sure of that this morning, come to Jesus and believe in him. Verse 41. 
The Jews then complained, shocker, about Jesus. And note, when we're told the Jews, this is likely this group of of skeptical religious leaders sent from Jerusalem. And they complained because Jesus said, I am the bread which comes down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I have come down to heaven? Now it's evident that while these religious leaders are, to a large extent, probably tracking with what Jesus is really getting at, what he's really saying, they're finding it difficult to accept any of this because of his claim, his obvious claim, a claim not debated, of his preexistence or his divinity. How can we take any of this for, you came from heaven? Well, aren't you the son of Joseph? Not actually. Mary, yeah, that's true. Their issue is his claim of preexistence, his claim of divinity. If you ever run across someone that says, like, Jesus never claimed to be God, then you say, you've never read anything Jesus said, especially this particular sermon. Verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Again, (laughs) the radical nature of what Jesus is saying here is incredibly controversial, especially in light of our version of Christianity that tragically caters itself to the sensibilities of the unchristian, of the lost. You have a group of of lost, skeptical religious leaders who are absolutely concerned about his claims of preexistence. And yet, notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't seek to defend or to debate his claims of preexistence. Instead, Jesus takes a totally different approach. Look at the characteristics he lays out of those who come to him, right? Not only would their acceptance of Jesus be proof of what? Well, first, that the Father drew them. But it would be also evidence that they were taught by God and heard and learned from the Father. So what's Jesus doing here? He's got a group of skeptic, skeptical religious leaders who are, are arguing about his claim of divinity, preexistence. Well, aren't you the son of Joseph and Mary? So instead of actually answering their question or getting into that particular debate, what does Jesus do? Jesus says that because these men were rejecting him, They actually just, they they knew nothing of the Father. It's kind of a backhanded way of of slapping them. Well, you're rejecting me. Why should I get into a debate with you? Obviously, the Father hasn't drawn you. And clearly, you're not taught by God. Clearly, you don't know anything of God. That's what Jesus is saying. To the skeptic, Jesus is not tiptoeing around. He's drop-kicking them in the face. And that's what he's doing. Now, now, on a side note, like Jesus, again, reiterates this point, right? That the Father must draw a person for that person to come. Personally, I'm of the opinion 
that while the case can be made, that God the Father only draws the elect. Because when the Father gets involved, salvation, redemption, there's a whole bunch of things that happen. I'm also of the opinion, though, that while God the Father only draws the elect, God the Holy Spirit, you can make the case scripturally draws all men to a decision about Jesus. In either case, this is what's cool. This morning, you're here at church. That's not an accident. You're like, well, it is. I got lost. I just I was here. Well, no. There's a God in heaven. Whether it's God the Father, and this morning you're going to make a decision, or it's the Holy Spirit, and it's going to lead to some conviction. Either way, you've been drawn, which means, check this out. That drawing, whatever's happening in your heart, please know that's God. That's God, which means he's involved in your life, in your heart. I think that's pretty radical. Well, verse 47, Jesus, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness (laughs) and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the bread, the living bread, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Again, by using this phrase, the bread of life, Jesus is illustrating a larger picture. Just as bread is essential for physical life. Jesus is essential for spiritual life. And in that culture, they understood the analogy. Bread was the basic staple of everyone's diet. In a way, bread and physical life, they were synonymous. During that day, you could not live without bread since it provided you the essential nutrients for physical life. You see, Jesus is saying here that just as bread is only useful, or or, let me add, Jesus is saying that he came to satisfy a spiritual need in man, central for life, similar to the way that bread functions in the life of the natural man. And it's with that understanding that this statement, the illustration of eating this bread, makes any sense at all. In its most simplistic form, just as the bread is only useful for the physical man if it enters the body, So must Jesus indwell the spirit of man for there to be any spiritual life. That's what he's saying. And again, this idea of eating was not meant to be taken literally. It's an illustration. In this Jewish culture that was built on strict dietary laws, it's a very different culture than ours. Understand, you were always careful, strict, stringent even, by what you ate, and here's why. In Jewish culture, what you ate could very well defile the individual before God. You see, eating food was a reverent act. And the food itself had to be legally determined to be clean since the very substance and the nature of the item you consumed became a fundamental part of the person. Like the Jews really, they really believe the the old idiom, you are what you eat. 
They were very careful what they ate because that substance of that, the very molecules became part of them. You became one with what you ate. If it was unclean, it made you unclean. So you had to eat only things that were clean. Now within the analogy and the greater illustration, we understand that when Jesus talks about eating here, he's talking about oneness. When Jesus says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, he's talking about an intimate communion, an intimate relationship with him that's essential for spiritual life. Jesus is not talking about literal eating, but the oneness and the interconnectedness that comes from a relationship with him. What comes from eating? Though it would have been impossible for anyone in the moment to have fully understood what Jesus was saying, when he said, I shall give my flesh for the life of the world, like we know exactly what he's talking about, right? In hindsight. We know that Jesus is talking about Ultimately, his crucifixion, which again means that Jesus is narrowing the metaphor by now speaking of the act of atoning for sin through the sacrificial death of his body. I shall give my flesh for what? For life for the world. Now notice the reaction of the religious leaders. Verse 52. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man... Give us his flesh to eat. Well, there is no doubt what Jesus is saying is shocking and controversial to say the least. This accusation in the the Greek, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's actually disingenuous. You see, the implications are that men really knew, these religious men, they knew what Jesus was articulating. They understood what Jesus was saying by using bread and eating as a deeper illustration of a spiritual reality. And yet here they are, in the midst of the assembly, intentionally twisting Jesus' words to make a point. What I find fascinating here is that Jesus not only does nothing to correct their intentional twisting of his words, (laughs) but instead Jesus kind of defiantly doubles down on the illustration. It's as if Jesus is like, okay, you religious leaders, you want to twist my words in a disingenuous way? You want to twist the metaphor? Well, try this one on for size. And then he he says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat my flesh, the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. There's a shockwave going across the room. And then Jesus says, very seeker-friendly-like, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Kind of get the picture that Jesus is like, you want to twist this? Let's roll. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate of the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Bum, bum, bum. Again, remember, Jesus is not speaking literally. It's not as though he's been, he's been literal and now he's speaking allegorically or he's been speaking you know, figuratively and now he's jumping into the literal. He's been consistent the whole way through. Carrying an analogy forward. You see, the notion of eating the flesh 
and drinking the blood. It had context. Jesus is continuing an illustration that he's already established, but within the greater symbolism, what is Jesus doing? He's directly tying the imagery to what? The sacrificial system. This entire religious structure established in the law. Within context, it is the identifying of ourselves with Jesus' body through the process of crucifixion and later resurrection. Oneness with Jesus. This is what Jesus is discussing here. On the cross, Jesus' body would be offered to atone for your sins. And his blood would be spilt for your purification. Not only did Jesus' bodily sacrifice satisfy your debt for sin and thereby justify you before God, if you come and believe, but it was through his blood that you now find yourself permanently declared righteous. It's not just that my balance has been satisfied, it's that now by the blood, I've been given an account that's never-ending. It's one thing to have a debt paid that I couldn't pay, only to now be at zero. That's great, but it's limited. It's Jesus satisfying the debt and then giving us an unlimited balance. Man, you racked up a lot of Capital One debt. We'll pay for that. But here's a new Capital One card that has no limits. The body takes care of the debt. The blood gives you the unlimited balance. See, we can see how this is a gift that we can't earn, right? And it's a gift given. The man of sin was crucified with Christ, this oneness. The man of sin, you, not just crucified with Christ, but was then laid in the garden tomb with Jesus. And then what happens? The old man dies and is buried. And then because Jesus rose and you're one with him, you rise to life. Old man dead, new man alive. Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection only happens in the context of this oneness. Complete oneness, illustrated by this eating, the body and the blood. You know, the case can be made, and I know this is some, this is some heavy theology. It's not my fault, it's Jesus' sermon. But the case can be made that the bread of life discourse ends up setting the stage for Paul's understanding of the true nature of the gospel message. Let me read for you a section of Romans 6 and see if this, if this connects. Paul writes, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, and therefore we were buried with him through the baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly shall we be uh, united together in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Jesus, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should be no longer slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. You get the picture here? What Jesus is saying about oneness, more succinctly, Paul will write Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, that he had been crucified with Christ. And then he says, he declares, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives where? 
in me. And we know in other places that the Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit, this third person of the Trinity that indwells the believer. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, the mechanism for this incredible work should not be confounded by the illustration. Jesus is not saying, let me be clear, that you have to eat his literal body and drink his actual blood to be saved. Which, note, and we'll get to this next Sunday, is the spiritual justification for the twisted Catholic doctrines known as transubstantiation, or for that matter, the Lutheran belief of consubstantiation pertaining to communion. Now, we've seen this over and over and over again in the sermon, that Jesus has said what? For you to experience this everlasting life, this everlasting life found in him. What's required? It must be given by him first, and then you must come and believe and receive. The only act required of you is faith in this larger work of Jesus on the cross. Which, by the way, is the entire point of communion. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. It's to remember what Jesus did for you on the cross and the resurrection. In the end, Jesus' bread of life discourse given this day in the synagogue of Capernaum was aimed at articulating really one idea. Lot said one big idea. And here it is, friend. If you're tired of what this world has to offer, if you're left empty by the inadequate rights of religion, if you find yourself unsatisfied and unfulfilled, if you long for this, and you can't articulate it other than to say a deeper hunger to be met and a thirst to be quenched, Don't miss this point. If you long for your deeper spiritual need to be remedied, your real need, if you want everlasting life today so that you can enjoy it for all of eternity, Jesus is clear your only option is to turn from these empty and inadequate pursuits and to come to him and to place your complete weight upon him and his work on the cross. Charles Spurgeon, probably the most famous Calvinist to have ever existed, said that he was a Calvinist six days of the week, but he was an Arminius on Sunday. And what he meant by that is he, he said, he said, yeah, I believe in the elect, but I also believe in calling the elect. He says, well, isn't that contradictory, Charles? He said, well, let me, let, me, let me paint it this way. If you were going fishing, you know, you'd go. You have no guarantees of catching anything. You might catch one. You might catch none. You might fill the boat. You go out. You go fish, right? But let me, let me what if I told you that you were going to a fishing hole and there were a thousand fish that you were going to catch? You tell me you wouldn't go fishing? 
Oh, you'd go fishing. And this morning, I believe, friend, that, that there is someone that the Lord is calling, that he's drawing. Not through some weight of condemnation. Not through, Jesus doesn't have to tell you you're not good enough. We're already aware of that, right? Like Jesus is not, hey, you're totally screwed up, come to me. You're already aware of that. Jesus draws us by his grace. He draws us through his love. He says, I'm so sorry that the world has chewed you up and spit you out, this consequence of sin, but I love you enough to remedy it so much so that I sent my son to die in your place, to raise from the dead so that you could identify with him in faith and be saved and have eternal life. They say that when you approach the pearly gates, it will say, whosoever wills. And then you enter the gates and you turn and you see another sign that says, predestined before the foundations of the earth. If you want to make sure you are chosen, make a choice. So Father, Lord, we ask.